0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics, and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. I'd like to introduce Steve Carter. Your role at uh, eHarmony, as I understand it, is one of chief scientist. So uh, Steve will be talking us through the science secrets behind eHarmony's compatibility science with the catchy title of Blind Data. So please welcome Steve Carter. Thank you. Okay, so uh, getting right to it, I don't think I'm going out on a limb uh, based on all of our life experiences and and the culture around us that we believe long-term relationships are hard. And the ONS agrees with us. Um, These are divorce rates in England. Uh, based on cohort of marriage, marriage being a nice kind of crucible uh, for the science of long term relationships. And as you can see, uh, they go appallingly high. Although there is nice news, they did get a little bit lower in the most recent cohort, um, which was from 2005. Uh, this data is from 2012. But long term relationships are hard. Everyone, I think, implicit to a lot of what's been said uh, this weekend has been about that. Um, And if you don't believe it, of course, we like to take all our lessons from celebrities, right? So you can just look at celebrity culture and see it's almost impossible for celebrities to stay together. Um, They just can't figure it out. And if they can't figure it out, how can we figure it out? right? I mean, this is is who we learn from. So long-term relationships are hard. The question is why? Why, if we care so much for each other, and we want so much to be in relationships, and we're all such lovely people, why is it hard to be in a long-term relationship and have it work out well? So I'm going to argue to you today, or I'm going I'm to lay out the thesis for you today. There's there's a very easy to understand reason why long-term relationships are hard. My perspective is I'm a I'm a psychologist. I have a PhD in cognitive developmental psychology, but we're really the focus on long-term or uh, real-world problem solving, complex problem solving. So obviously, if you own a hammer you look for what things you can hit, right? So I look at everything from the standpoint of, of problem solving, and complex problem solving. Um, you can also look at it in terms of goals, right? Relationship, relationship onset goals. Our goals when we set out to start dating, to, to find a person to have a long-term relationship with, generally, often aren't to actually have a long-term relationship at all, right? We're going out because we're single, um, and we're hoping we'll find someone we're attracted to. That's goal number one. I will argue. Goal number two is that you get them to find you attractive, because that always makes things nicer. Um, goal number three is maybe over time you'll fall in love. If you believe in that, Helen, stay out of this. And then finally, that you'll have that love reciprocated, that the love will be successful, that they will fall in love with you. That this is our rather our Maslowian hierarchy of needs when applied to the onset of the relationship, which is going to become that long-term relationship, which is. Statistically speaking, so so onerous, so 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 unlikely to turn out the way we would like it to. Now compare this to our goals once we're in a relationship, and you'll see it's kind of upside down, right? Once you're in the relationship, you're no longer trying to find somebody to find attractive. You're trying to make that person who supposedly is in love with you appreciate you, right? You want, you want support. You, you have emotional needs that you want to be met. Right? You don't want to be taken for granted. You want to stay in love with your partner or at least stay in like with your partner, respect your partner. If not a goal, this is extremely important if you're reading the research on why relationships fall apart like Chris was talking about. It's the little things more than the big grand gestures that make relationships last over time. This needs to be one of your goals in a long-term relationship to make it work. So let's assume that it will be. And then finally, and this really is lastly, the thing that was first when you went out that night and met that person that you're now in that long-term relationship with is the least of all possible importance. So, and maybe it's nice they find you attractive. So this is the problem. The, the goals completely invert. So everything that led to the creation of that relationship has very little importance in making that relationship work over the long term. Another way of looking at this is what we do well and what we do badly. And this speaks very, very directly to these goals and the way the goals change. The goals of The person going out and finding someone to date or to talk with that night in the pub are very, very proximal. They're very, very immediate. They're what we would think of as things that are easy for humans to do from a problem-solving standpoint, a task or a problem with readily available or proximal information, right? It is very, very easy for you to walk into a pub and know if you find anyone in that pub attractive right, physically attractive anyway. And then it's pretty easy for you to find out if anyone's gonna find you attractive or find anything you say funny by walking up to them and trying it. This is easy, this applies to your entire existence. We can solve problems that have a ton of information in them, right, we drive our cars down the road not thinking twice about the fact we're processing thousands of pieces of information at once, in parallel almost, coming from different modalities or the sensorium and making life and death decisions thousands of times between London and Hay if we drove, right? We're really good at that. We've evolved to be very, very good at that. What we're really crap at is problems where the information is not right there in front of us. And maybe it's not right there in front of us because it's personality traits that are deep and buried and are going to be kind of filter up through all of the manners and, and good intentions and desires to be attractive that are present of the people we meet socially. When you meet me socially, I'm not trying to be honest, I'm trying to be pleasant, right? It goes for most of us. Maybe they're distant because they're actually distant in time. There's an argument that the reason that humans have evolved to live past sexual senescence, past the point where we can reproduce, is because since we're so crap at long-term problem-solving, it's very valuable to us as social organisms to keep old people around because they will recognize when something that's happened in the past may happen in the future, but years away, and help us know where we should move the tribe. We're really good at running away from that tiger. We're not so good at knowing when that two months of no rain means we really need to move somewhere else in the savanna, right? So, In these cases, something very interesting happens. When we're presented with tasks or problems where the information is obscure or far away, we tend to do one of two things. Either we solve the wrong problem. In this case, I would argue, we find the person we're attracted to that we can get along well with in the pub from the standpoint of solving the long-term relationship problem. It's not solving the right problem, right? Or we use the wrong information. So, for example, A donut costs fifty cents. You guys don't eat donuts. What's a donut in England? Give me a give me a a scone. What's what's the what's the English equivalent? A donut. A donut's okay. Okay, donuts across the pond. All right. So a donut costs fifty cents, and you have that should be you have two pound fifty. All right. How long will it take you to Birmingham? (laughs) Everyone in this room has the number five in their head right now and it's going to stay in their head, and it's got nothing to do with how long it's going to take you to get to Birmingham, but it's a very easy problem to solve. Okay, you use the wrong information. Birmingham is accessible via the A438, about 140 kilometers away, full of meth labs. <laughs> I don't know what the A438 even is, and kilometers are like, I don't know why you guys, you guys invented the mile, and you decided to switch to kilometers. These are very obscure information for me. That's gonna stick in my head immediately, right? It has nothing to do with the problem at all. And these aren't perfect examples, mind you. I will give you that, but this is a, this kind of a metaphor of the thing that people do, and it's a metaphor for why people get into relationships that don't work out wrong, right well necessarily in the long term. So compatibility, getting into a relationship with someone that you are gonna do well with. If we try to actually solve that problem, which is what eHarmony scientifically has set out to do, you have to solve the right problem using the right information. Dating doesn't do that. Escalation is based on proximal stuff. Those things are important for a relationship to start. You can't ignore them as organisms, but a system that focuses on them won't optimize the long-term outcome. The long-term outcome needs to be optimized or solved based on the features which are actually predicting long-term success, right? Which are having similar or conflicting goals, having compatible personalities or personalized and values and characteristics that mesh, having ways of communicating that go well with each other or in the case of Mordecai Gottman, if you've ever come across his research, isn't hugely destructive of a relationship. The way you talk to people and the way you talk when you get angry can be hugely destructive to a relationship. So, these are the things that lead to long-term success. Now, the question was posed, do online dating sites lead to solving this problem? Well, it depends on what you do on them, doesn't it? I mean, Christian Rudder here helped invent OkCupid and he's talking about why it's successful to spam all your matches with the same message. Make it a very unique sounding message, make it a long-ish message that's talking about something that seems very, very unique, but then send it to everyone. Does that seem like it's gonna solve the long-term issue? No. This guy, super smart maths PhD student at UCLA, hacked OkCupid. He spent six weeks, after he'd run out of funding mind you, he was living in his cubicle on campus, spent six weeks using a Cray supercomputer complex, whoops, Uh, down in Marina Del Rey, to cluster analyze all the different questions on OkCupid and figure out how to make himself 100% compatible with every woman on OkCupid. (laughs) (laughs) Why? So that they would be attracted to him. He then went out on 88 dates, 87 of them were horrible. The 88th one, he got married to. <laughs> I hope it'll work. I mean, clearly she's got something in common with him. He told her, she, he, he told her he'd done this and she didn't run away in terror. <laughs> this guy built a mechanical finger to swipe right on Tinder. Again, why? so that every single woman that Tinder would match him to based on their location parameters would think he found them attractive and therefore consider writing him back, right? This is not solving the long-term problem, or this is not geared towards solving the right problem if your interest is having a successful long-term relationship. So the question is, what do you do? What should you do? Well, psychologists for the best part of the last 100 years have actually been looking at this. This is an image of a paper. Genevieve, this is the slide that I added. Um, From 1935, where Lewis Terman, who who became very famous in, in psych assessment circles, set out to figure out what personality factors led to marital compatibility, right? After him, a guy named Burgess and another guy named Cottrell did an even bigger study in 1938, 1939, And they basically came to the conclusions that are very similar to some of the conclusions we have now, that there are very strong, what we call main effects, aspects of yourself that predict your happiness in a relationship, but that there are also interactions between what you are and what your partner is that will lead to satisfaction relationships. I think they also found some rather funny things. I think Terman found that you were inclined to marry women that looked like your mom. I'm not sure. So I agree with that one. So what do these models look like? Well, this is the current state of the art in the field of relationship science. This is an a actor-partner interdependence model that was developed by Dave Kenney um, about 1999, I think. And this is kind of still the state of the art in terms of what we call structural equation modeling. Um, and what you see is that these... these oh, excuse me, I need water. I was promised water, there we go. Thank you. We see these direct effects are very strong, what we call the actor effects. Where the females, and here we have one of the the big five personality factors, right, agreeableness. The the main effect, the effect of your own traits to your own happiness are very strong. And that's the actor part of the actor-partner interdependence model. Then you've got the partner effects, where we see it also affects you what your partner is. Those relationships are a bit weaker. But there's a caveat here. There's a, big, there's a big focus in the literature on the fact that it can be hard to see that these are statistically significant once these are in the model. But the problem is they're both por- positively correlated with each other, right? This, you being high, in the case of these being strong positive effects, these being high mean, and people being similar mean that these are going to be homogenized. So you've got a problem that this very paradigm of modeling means that the the direction, and strength of these effects are gonna make it very difficult to observe these alone. So we've actually added a third effect type in this model when we build our models, which is a similarity effect, which is actually the absolute difference between the male and female. We find that that helps solve that problem. Unfortunately, we have a hard time publishing in academic journals because what we do is engineering, not science from their standpoint. We take these things and we use them to actually match people up in a product, which means we don't want to publish the model in the academic journal, which means they don't want to publish our findings because we won't let them publish the model. So there's a bit of a, a, bit of a um, conflict between us and, and Harry Reese and Eli uh, and some other people in the, in the field because we can't actually publish our stuff. But I can show you. Um, so this is, our, this is one of our latest models where this is basically our, our actor-partner interaction model instead of interdependence model because we've added that interaction term. And basically this is that model I just showed you, but blown out into 19 factors. right? And this model is basically optimizing, or, or predicting I should say, uh, the satisfaction of the, of the female in the relationship, the satisfaction of the male. Obviously we do this with same-sex couples as well, but it's easier to put colors on it and make it sensible with two different genders. Um, And then we engineer a system based on this where we set a criteria level that those two scores both have to to, um, supersede in order for a match to be deemed compatible. That that level, traditionally when we launched the company, was an 80% correct positive rate of being in the top 25% of marriages. So that you have about a 4x times... Uh, or, or be four times as likely to be in a, the top 25% of marriages if this model said you were. When we looked at this longitudinally in couples that came through our system versus couples that met in the wild, we found that that regressed to the mean a bit, and that's where the term regression actually comes from because Goss and Student noticed this back in the 1800s when you create a correlational model and then use it longitudinally, you generally see your effect regresses to the mean, but it still is quite significant. I think it's about a 60% chance of being in the top quartile of marriage comes out of our system when comparing our marriages to people who met in, in the wild, as it were. So that's the way our system works in terms of compatibility. Okay, what's wrong with the model of compatibility based solely on people who are already married. And the great thing is, and I hate to say this, but lots of married people are really unhappy. So you get great heterogeneity of variance, and you have to have variance to model something, right? If you've got no variance, you can't correlate, you can't predict, because you've got nothing, you've got no covariance. Talk to me about that later, I'll do a better job explaining that. But what's wrong if I'm only looking at married people and I want to predict compatibility among single people? Anyone? Say again. They might not be compatible. Well, they'll be compatible as married people. Hint, hint, hint. They're all already married. Anything that predicts you wanting to marry someone has been homogenized in your sample. You've homogenized on, on basically one of the key things that single people want to do, and that's find someone attractive enough to want to get married to them. So all that first problem, the, the proximal problem, has been thrown out which is great from the standpoint that we're doing something that people are a bit crap at, but it's bad to the extent that we're not doing something that people are pretty good at, and that's figuring out who they're gonna find attractive. And it's not a very satisfying experience when you go onto a dating site and they show you a bunch of people that they say you're compatible with for a long-term relationship, and you find them all unattractive, right? So we had to solve that. So here's a long way of saying what I just said. Oh, here's where my orthogonal joke comes from. So compatibility models were orthogonal with attraction models. You see, at MIT, that slays them. (laughs) All right, so we need models that also are going to predict attraction, right? The nice thing about that is we've got a website with millions of people on it looking at hundreds of millions of matches per year, and we can look at their behavior as a proxy for attractiveness, right? We can look at who communicates to who and say, well, so those matches where they both chose to communicate to each other, those are really good matches because. Both persons found each other attractive enough to want to talk to each other, and the ones where one person wanted to send communication, those are maybe okay, because it has to start with someone, right? The ones where no one talks to anyone, which I cut off the slide, those are really bad, right? We also use, actually, it's not probably relevant to you, we also use, if you look at a profile, but don't discard it, because we do have a, an issue with our negative signal is very dirty. That's a machine learning issue I'll I'll save you from. So uh, getting to the fun stuff. So what are some of the predictors of this communication on the site? Well, it's the stuff you'd expect, or the stuff you'd expect if you've ever done any online dating anyway. Distance is a big one. No one wants to talk to someone who's too far away, right? Height is a big one. People kind of want to homogenize on height, with the male being slightly taller being better. A range of four to eight inches taller key. You get much taller than that. This is the difference between man and female. Not so good. So if she's 5'5 five five and you're 6'5, move on. Uh, self-rated attractiveness. This isn't someone else rating how attractive you are. We tried that. That didn't work so well. People's, people's ratings of who they find attractive are really, really noisy and random. Um, when you're not doing studies on the faces of 18 to 24 year old college students who aren't taking birth control, which is what most of those studies where they talk about neonatal features being attractive are. But when we look at how attractive people say they are, we have a factor, it's about seven questions, but basically it's how attractive do you think you are. We find that that homogenizes quite strongly on who will talk to each other. So in other words, people who both think they're really good looking or not so good looking or kind of bad looking, are more likely to talk to each other than pairings where one person thinks they're hot and the other person doesn't on either end of the scale. Right? We see a similar thing with weight, although it's more sexist in that big men will talk to small women, but small, small women, no, small, small men won't talk to big women. So, Big and big goes well, small and small goes well, but then it, there's a gender divide there for, for uh, weight. Um, and no one likes being asked how heavy they are, so that's, we took that out of the site. But we did a really neat study where we had photos rated for how heavy they were, and that was very reliable. But then we stopped doing that because we decided people wouldn't like it if they thought their photos were being scored for how heavy they were. <laughs> you know, there's different nuances to running this kind of business. You have to be sensitive to a lot of things. All right, so photo aspect ratio. This probably won't make a lot of sense to you, but you got square photos, wide photos, narrow photos. So this would be, you know, how, what, what the width to height ratio is. I had another slide, but I took it out. So this is how much calm they get. So you see, okay, photos where it's, you know, a landscape do quite well. Photos that are very narrow do quite badly. Why would that be? What's a photo that's very narrow? Any ideas? Yeah, it's that one you cut your girlfriend out of. Doesn't go over well. Doesn't, doesn't, no, not good. Putting put photos of yourself up with other women, also a big loser. If you're thinking somehow I'm gonna put a photo up with me with some hot girl and that'll make other girls think I'm hot, no, that doesn't work. Uh, and, then, and then photo zoom level is also a powerful feature. People really tend to want to see some of your body, right? So, you know, all your face, whoa, too much, none of your face, horrible, but really a little bit of your face, a little bit of your body is a good mix. That's the best, the best profile picture you can put out there. So this is what the system became over time, right? We've got the compatibility system scoring the parents for if they're going to be compatible if they decide to get married because those models are based upon analysis of married couples. Then we've got the affinity system scoring how likely you are to talk to each other based upon actually a whole host of features of which I showed you a few and we basically layer those on top of each other. Now the way this happens if anyone's really wonky is that we use a flavor of linear programming called CS2 which is basically a traveling salesman algorithm. And We took an algorithm that was designed to optimize getting packages from one point to another and using the least amount of gas. So you've got a sink and a source, it's a bipartite graph, men and women in this case, and you are using the amount of communication you expect to have as the cost of each of those edges, only you invert it. So, when you solve that graph in parallel, and we use Elastic MapReduce on Hadoop to do this up in, the, up in our own web. We were in early, never mind, we were on the cloud before anyone else was. Uh, but when you solve this, the, the matches that you get, so we start with a, a graph of about 12 billion edges, right? 12 billion possible matches. We reduce that to about 10 million matches a night and those are all optimized for how likely communication is to happen between them. Okay, that was very wonky, I apologize. But someone in this room might have cared. So this is the system as it currently exists. Now, one thing I left out, of course, we ask you what you want. The first thing is, how far away can someone be? What age do you want them to be? Um, Can they smoke? Can they drink? We then ask you how important those things are, and if you don't say very important, we immediately relax them because we're trying to get the biggest pool possible to compare you to. We then score those for how compatible they're gonna be with you, that creates this intersection. This is a Venn diagram that's an actual Venn diagram, right, because some of the people that are inside your real criteria, some of the people that are inside your relaxed criteria, then we weight those all, and we put them into CS2, the linear programming in uh, elastic mac produce. All right, how much time do I have? (laughs) We're out of time. Okay, so that's how the system currently works. And we have found that it does actually create better relationships. As I was alluding to before, uh, the membership in the top quartile of marriage is about uh, three times what it would be in the wild. We also see that our couples have significantly higher satisfaction scores, which is what our DV is in our our marriage research, and that our divorce rates are quite a bit lower. We've got a lot of new things we're doing next. So here's the question, do we want to ask questions or do we want to see what things are being added to the system next? Anyone, by, by hands, who wants to ask questions? Who wants to hear about new features? Okay, we'll talk later then. Okay, <clears throat> although I like your enthusiasm, young man. So, we're doing machine scoring of photos. So this is our current state of the art. We actually developed something called face Parts. I don't think we open sourced it, but we did build it a lot on an open source project called OpenCV, and basically we're scoring pictures for the components of the faces that are in the pictures. This is interesting, and there's some really interesting stuff going on in terms of machine learning. Excuse me, machine learning on faces, if anyone's interested in this stuff, I would point you to Michael Kaczynski at Stanford, Um, who is oddly in the business school there, but while he was a grad student, he started working on this stuff. He's a computer computer science major in grad school, and he's continuing to work on that stuff as a business school professor at Stanford. Um, They're doing some very, very interesting stuff with machine scoring of photos. Um, We're working with Michael, trying to see how if, and it's, it's basically like the new age of phrenology. If anyone remembers phrenology from Psych 101, the psychotic thing about it is you actually seem to be able to predict Personality factors from facial features. I know it pisses me off too. Worse than that, worse than that, they can predict sexual orientation extremely successfully from from pictures of faces. And this, I had this whole, um, aren't you going down the Robert Oppenheimer trail with Michael about this? And he gave me that wide-eyed computer scientist look, like, what do you mean? Knowledge is power. Um, because there are countries where where being homosexual is, is punishable by horrible, gruesome things, and they have lots of CCT cameras around, right? So Michael's not the only one doing this, and it's, it's proving to be very, very effective. Um, so it's kind of alarming. But we're also showing that you can, you can extract other personality factor information from it, and we're also looking to look at things beyond faces, because most of the pictures we get on eHarmony aren't just close-ups of people's faces, right? They're pictures like this. This is an eHarmony user here from several years ago. Um, when you join up to Harmony, you do sign a release that says I can do this. So just keep this in mind, okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you can make out who this guy is, but just... Um, so here's a photo of, of user 24821192. And you can see that the Google Cloud Platform, which is based on a system uh, developed by, by Hartmut Neville, who's a really interesting guy who developed a thing called Neville Vision that got bought by Google about 2005. It's scored 91% that there's a person there. Well, that's not too surprising. But then it's also 68% that it's a professional person, right, and a 54% that he's giving a lecture. Well, that's not very good. Now, compare that to this one, where we've got you know, user 32458175, and we've got 75% that he's involved in air sports, right? 65% adventure, 62% flight. 6% extreme sport. I am very hopeful that scores like this are gonna allow us to see interactions between the types of people that you wanna to talk to. Very early on, we did some, some by, you know, simpler research and found that you can definitely buy, buy, excuse me bifurcate men and women by if they wanna to talk to someone who's holding a drink. But that's only a tiny percentage of our users, right? Hopefully stuff like this will let us score a lot of our users. And wait, there's one more picture. And then we'll find out if things like this really have any value. Is everyone aware of the, the, the Tinder tiger phenomena? This, these, are, these are all pictures from Tinder. That apparently, a couple years ago, uh, it became a fad to post a picture of yourself with a tiger on Tinder, to the extent that zoos had to start actually enforcing rules to keep people away from their damn tigers. Um, but who knows? Maybe we'll find that Google can identify a tiger and that it's actually interacting meaningfully with communication rates. So that's great, new features for optimizing communication on the site, and communication is that kind of attraction uh, marker. But what else can we optimize? So we're optimizing for long-term relationship success. We're optimizing for, well, you want to talk to this person. There's a lot of green between those two things, right? There's a lot of things that happen between I'm with you for 15 years and it's going great, or I, I want to talk to you. We call this the long-term relationship funnel, or at least I do since my flight over here a couple nights ago. So it starts with you're matched by us, then you choose to communicate online, then you meet for a date. If that doesn't lead to continued dating, it's all over, right? Long-term relationships are way out here, and one out of a thousand as a guesstimate. We find that about one out of eight of our users leaves the site in a long-term relationship. So we're already optimizing this one, Right? Their affinity optimization is here. We redesigned our entire communication system to try to get you to, to do better there. What about how you do on that first date? So if you have better first dates, you have more second dates, more chance of getting into a long-term relationship. That's what we're trying to optimize now by having people do speed dating who have taken our questionnaire, and we've actually created a new questionnaire because there's been some research on speed dating, some really good research on speed dating in the past few years, and it's shown that these, these big five personality factors mostly, and I would imagine to a certain extent, anything that's hard to see, going back to our, our like third slide, right, what the kind of problems we're crap at solving when the information's hard to find, dating is not a context where you are exhibiting your real personality very accurately. So, we're not expecting our personality measures and in our, in our long-term characteristic measures to do very well predicting dating, so we've come up with a new thing to measure, which is your sense of humor, <coughs> right? Because what do you do when you're on a first date? You try to make the other person laugh. And everyone says, but 90% of our users say that one of the most important things to them is a sense of humor, and we think what they really mean is the same sense of humor they have. When it's an interesting thing. It's difficult to talk about this. There's not a science of types of sense of humor. There's a little bit of a science of why people find things funny, why societies have humor, but we all, I think, believe that you can have a dry sense of humor, a sarcastic sense of humor, a macabre sense of humor, a, a, a prankish or, or, or juvenile sense of humor, yet there's not a science about that, about identifying different in fact, We don't even have words to talk about it. So I trip up on it, styles of sense of humor. But this is what we're trying to do. So to do this, we're using uh, different types of, well, things that not everyone would find funny, and we're looking at the responses to them. It says, I think animal testing is a terrible idea. They get all nervous and give silly answers. Yeah, see, very few people find that funny. So we're using things like this, and the covariance between them, between the things that almost everyone finds funny, and things that only particular types of people find funny, those create factors. I mean, that's that's the the definition of psychometric assessment, right? You find covariance between items, which is somewhat unique, yet statistically reliable. And by doing this, we're creating empirically defined styles of senses of humor, and we're finding that they are significant predictors of who does well on first dates. So, in a year or so, you're going to see Harmony advertising that we, more than anyone else, can guarantee you a better first date. And hopefully, it's going to be true. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.